Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. Former President Donald Trump was impeached for an unprecedented second time by the House of Representatives last month. His trial in the Senate gets underway on Tuesday. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at the impeachment process and how the trial may play out. David Schultz is a Hamlin University professor of political science and a University of Minnesota visiting professor of law. Professor Schultz, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's been about a year since Trump's last impeachment trial, but a lot has happened since then. So before we get into the details of the current impeachment, let's start with a reminder of what the definition of impeachment is. Why did the country's founders include such a provision in the Constitution, and what did they consider to be an impeachable offense? Okay, so let's start with the reasons for it. And the reasons for it really date us back to what? To to England, you know, our, our English legal history and the battles between what? Parliament and the Crown at that point. And Parliament was looking for ways of checking abuses by maybe not so much the king, but by the king's ministers in terms of being able to control them. So starting in about the 14th century, um, they used this tool called impeachment, where they wanted to be able to remove ministers of the king who in some way were abusing their authority. You know, maybe it was graft, it was corruption, maybe it was what? Non-performance of duties, uh, a, a variety of things. So translate this across the Atlantic, Ocean, put this into 1787, our framers are creating, constitutional framers are creating an executive branch, creating a president. And and they're worried about the fact that what? Um, They want to make sure that the president doesn't get too powerful, doesn't abuse his authority, because they still have on their minds what? The abuses of King George III, you know, you know, carrying over from our colonial days. So during the debates, they said, well, there has to be a tool beyond the normal checks and balances and separation of powers to to control presidential power. Um, And that tool um, that they came up with was impeachment, again, borrowing it from the English idea. And the, the language that they chose to use for grounds for impeachment were treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, treason's pretty clear. Treason's defined in the Constitution as either giving aid and comfort to the enemy or waging war against the United States. That's a pretty clear definition. All right. Bribery, also, I think most of us can figure out what bribery is. But the the concern that they had would have been what? Some foreign power bribing the king so that, or bribing the president, I should say, is a foreign power bribing the president, and therefore the president is not beholden to the United States. But there was this last phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors, um, which is a, a difficult one to figure out. During the Constitutional Convention, at one point, um, the suggestion was, well, treason, bribery, and maladministration. And some said, well, that's not a good definition. James Madison wasn't happy with it. So they settled on a phrase that, again, has an English origin to it, high crimes and misdemeanors. And it doesn't mean actually committing a crime. It's something broader. And over time, what we've learned from the previous efforts to impeach a president and the times when we've impeached other officials, 
and really from state experiences with their own sort of impeachment clauses and so forth, is that high crimes and misdemeanors means, among other things, abuse of authority. It means maladministration, non-administration. Uh, uh, it's almost to the point to where Gerald Ford, former U.S. president, but when he was a member of Congress, when they asked him, well, what's a high crime and misdemeanor? And he said, well, it's whatever Congress in their judgment believes it is. And it's probably correct. It's ultimately a political judgment. Do we believe that, or does Congress believe that the president, for some reason, is no longer fit to be in office as president of the United States? The House has charged President Trump with inciting an insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. As we discussed, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution says a president shall be removed from office for a conviction of either treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Where does inciting an insurrection fit into one of these grounds for impeachment? Well, this is interesting. I would have thought that maybe this would have been treason, for example. It seems to me, if all the facts are correct, if he's encouraging people to, uh, I guess, storm the Capitol, that sounds like what? Waging war against the United States in some way or giving aid and comfort to whoever the enemy is. And so to me, it's if you assume all this is an impeachable offense, I thought it maybe would have fit more into the treason one. But here, as I've read through the report from the House of Representatives for this impeachment and their argument for why this is an impeachable offense, what they're really trying to say is that what the president did here um, so much encouraged disrespect for the law, that the president failed to perform his duties as president of the United States, which is supposed to be what? You know, remember, he takes an oath of office, preserve, protect and defend the Constitution uh, and so forth, that they're saying that that this is such a serious enough of an offense that he deserves to be impeached and convicted, even if he is no longer president of the United States. Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas, has publicly condemned the president for his role in the attack on the Capitol. But he and other Republican lawmakers contend that a president cannot be impeached once out of office. What is your take on this? You know, this is a really interesting question here, because if we had interviewed, let's say, six to eight weeks ago, uh, and I've written on impeachment, and you said to me, a president can be impeached and convicted after he left office, I would say, no, I don't think so. Uh, uh, And you'd say to me, why? And say, well, The Constitution, I think, is clear on this issue because it talks about impeachment and conviction means removal from office. So I'm thinking, all right, this is only a tool to be used while somebody is in office, which lends credence to to Cotton's argument. However, if you actually go back and look at it, we've got semicolons separating certain things in the phrasing there. And the Constitution doesn't explicitly say you can't do this. It doesn't say explicitly you can't, but it doesn't say you explicitly can't do this. That is trial and impeachment or impeachment and trial afterwards. And then there is this strange historical legacy, William Belknap. William Belknap was the Secretary of War. That's what we used to call him before we called him the Secretary of Defense. He was the Secretary of War uh, during the Grant administration. And he was impeached, resigned, and then the Senate said, well, we're going to hold a trial anyhow. And the rationale was, 
Well, if somebody's doing something wrong, um, their way of escaping liability would be what? Just simply, or culpability, simply resign before we can have a trial. And so what their argument was, was that we still needed to have this tool in place. And plus they seem to be suggesting, well, if we don't have this in place, what would prevent somebody um, from doing bad things near the end of their term and then not being able to be held accountable for them? The long-winded being is that, like I said, two months ago, I would have said Tom Cotton is absolutely correct. He's neither right nor wrong, nor is the other side right nor wrong in terms of whether he could do this. I think the Constitution is actually ambiguous on this. But if William Belknap means anything, perhaps you can do that. And if you accept an argument that says that, what do we do with, let's say, a renegade president? I'm not talking about this one, but, but in general, what do we do with a renegade president who, after losing an election, decides to do something really crazy? Uh, don't we need something in place to punish that person? So if you put all that together, there's a plausible case to be made to do the impeachment and trial. Trump's lawyers have argued in a brief sent to the Senate that the president's words at a rally on January 6th, which preceded the storming of the Capitol, are protected by the First Amendment. On that day, the president told the crowd to keep fighting. But can it be proven that he meant that in a literal sense versus a figurative sense? Yeah, I was going to say that a lot of times um, many of us encourage people on, whether it's football games or whatever it is, and we say, fight, 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 fight. And now, do we mean go out and beat up people? No, we don't. Uh, so so we, we do have sort of a question of intentionality here, perhaps. What did he actually mean? But remember, this is not a criminal trial. Um, if it were a criminal trial, um, you would have to show not only did he say something, but he intended it to do certain types of things. And so on one level, since this is not a criminal trial, his state of mind, what he intended is, is as on one level, not material for proving, let's say, guilt, but possibly it could be important if you're trying to assess overall, you know, you know whether he was what, reckless? whether he was indifferent, whether he, he was just foolish in what he's doing, and then whether or not this rises to a level that is high enough um, to remove him from office. I should also point out, there's a famous court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio. It's from the 1960s. And it's a really kind of a grisly case I want to talk about for a second here. It involves a bunch of Klan members, Ku Klux Klan members. They're fully hooded with loaded guns, uh, and they're marching around a flag. It's, it's, it's a or not flag, around a cross, burning cross, really heinous scene. And one of them is quoted as saying, um, let's go out there and take revenge on somebody. Now, that seems pretty inflammatory language. And they were prosecuted for that. And the court said, guess what? This is protected speech. And I say that because the court's standard there for what's protected versus not protected speech is what's called the imminent lawless standard. Um, speech is protected speech until such time is that it advocates imminent lawlessness. The reason why I mention this, even if Trump's statements intended them to go, uh, take, go down to the Capitol and take physical revenge or whatever like that, his speech is right on the edge. You know, it's hard to tell. You know, could he be cited under 
current free speech law or did he cross the line? Again, that's what makes it so difficult here. Again, if this were a criminal trial, but again, it's not. Um, but if it were a criminal trial, it's not clear one way or the other right now if it's protected or not protected free speech. During the last Senate impeachment trial, only one Republican, Mitt Romney, voted for an article of impeachment. What do you think Republican senators will do this time around? What kinds of evidence would they need to hear to convict? Well, again, if I can draw the criminal analogy, many of us have watched too many, like, let's say, law and order or, or court scenes where we all know in a criminal trial, you've got a presumption of innocence and you have to show beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, that somebody did something. Again, because it's not a criminal trial, there's no real clear standard. We can't say beyond a reasonable doubt or whatever. But given the fact that we've done so many other presidential impeachments um, or tried to do them and no one's been convicted yet, I'm almost going to say that de facto, there's nothing written in the law, but de facto, it's nearly what an absolute certainty, you know, that somebody did something to remove them that deserve to be removed from office. And so here, I'm not sure what it would take. I mean, you know, for Republicans, especially in a very polarized environment that we have now to convince them to say, yep, I think he ought to be convicted and removed from office. The indication was from last week when the Republicans voted almost to a T to say, we don't think that the president can be put on trial is sort of suggesting to me that barring something incredibly unpredictable here, I don't think you're going to get uh, the 67 votes you need to convict the president. And that's assuming all 50 Democrats vote to convict. You'd have to get 17 Republicans. You might get a few Republicans, but I doubt you're going to see 17 at this point. Well, more than a year ago in 2019, we interviewed you as the House voted on articles of impeachment before the Senate trial. It was then pretty obvious that the two-thirds majority vote needed to convict would not happen. We asked you what the point of the trial was given this prospect. Is this question still applicable to this trial? Do we pretty much know that barring some amazing pieces of evidence that come forward, the Senate Republicans will not vote to convict? And if that's the case, is this trial even worth a bitter partisan fight? Well, it's, it, you're right. Barring something that none of us know, uh, almost Perry Mason-esque, where like some evidence appears out of nowhere uh, that everybody suddenly is shocked and it changed them. Yeah, it's, it's unlikely. Now, this is a good question here. Um, I was talking to one of my friends the other day who's, who's very, very partisan Democrat. And I said that in some sense, this is a show trial. You know, this is a trial that the Democrats want um, to embarrass the Republicans, to embarrass the president. They want to say he's the only president ever to been twice impeached at this point. And she came back and she was at him and said, no, you have to do this as a matter of principle. Uh, it's absolutely imperative. And I said, I'm not sure that's the right answer, because what's going to happen Assuming we all think of what the president did was wrong, I said, what it's going to do um, is give him um, a free microphone again to be able to sort of air his side and he's going to be exonerated and he's going to be able to say, I was acquitted yet again. And much in the same way that he was able to say that back in early 2020, he'll be able to do the same thing here. So I think that this process may very well backfire on the Democrats um, in terms of them not getting what they want. And what I actually would have liked to have seen instead is 
whether he broke the law is a different story entirely. I still think what he said probably wasn't the smartest thing in the world to say as president of the United States of what he did. Um, I would rather see the House and Senate vote to censure the president or the ex-president and say, we condemn what you said. Um, and let that and the fact that he lost the election uh, and the events of January 6th become lessons of history that future presidents learn from. President Joe Biden ran on a message of unity. Does a Senate trial over Trump's actions potentially interfere with his agenda and his ability to work with the Senate Republicans? Yeah, I think it does on both of those scores. Now, if you had, let's say, the Republicans behind the Democrats on this one, uh, that Trump basically was unifying the two sides, then no, it wouldn't be a problem whatsoever. But the fact that it's so divisive at this point and the fact that it's going to take away from time that this country should be worried about other stuff. I mean, my own view is on one level, putting Trump on trial doesn't help us distribute more vaccines more quickly. Putting Trump on trial um, doesn't make sure there are no more George Floyds. And to some extent, it's a little bit of a, of a distract. Well, not just a little bit. It's a distraction. It's a sideshow. If President Trump is convicted, the punishment of removal from office is obviously moot. If convicted, would he automatically be disqualified for running for another federal office, or would that be a separate vote? Again, if you'd spoken to me two months ago, I would have thought, and my reading of the Constitution was, removal from office came with barring from running for office again in the future automatically. More research suggest that's a little bit more of an open question here. Uh, but let's say there was a conviction. The conviction doesn't automatically entail a punishment. The Senate would have to do a separate vote in terms of the punishment to bar him from future office. Although, again, it's, it's, it's a debatable question here, whether or not they have to do it. The other thing that's debatable, and one score, there were several legal scholars who argued and said, well, once two-thirds have convicted him, it would only take a majority vote um, to impose that lifetime ban on office to punish him again. I'm not sure that's correct. In the previous instances where federal judges have been impeached and convicted and where they barred him from running for future office, it's been two-thirds votes. And so I think here what seems to be the right answer, but again, I say seems because we're not altogether clear. We know it would take two-thirds to convict. I think it would take a separate vote of two-thirds to bar him from future office. There is debate about whether a sitting president can be charged with a crime. That's something that was addressed in the Mueller report. But a president can be charged after leaving office. Would pursuing a felony conviction of Trump be more worthwhile for Democrats than going through a politically fraught Senate impeachment trial? And I think that's a very good argument here because no matter how anybody looks at it otherwise, it's going to be looked as what? Democrats versus Republicans. Now, it won't be quite set up the same way it was a couple of years ago where it was a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. Um, and it, it had a partisan look to it. But here it's what now? Democratic House, Democratic Senate. The votes are going to fall largely along party lines. It's going to look like what? A political vendetta versus one hopes that our court system, where it has to go through what, you know, indictment, trial, 
uh, has to go through the court system with impartial judges or juries. Uh, if, if they were to reach a conclusion and say that the president did something criminally wrong, maybe that's a viable solution. Now, again, many people are saying that, well, this is not criminal, but he nonetheless should be punished. But you're right. There are arguments to be made that perhaps pursuing the president, if you thought this was wrong, through the court system would have better optics or better view than what's occurring right now. We're talking with David Schultz, a professor of political science at Hamlin University and a visiting professor of law at the University of Minnesota. You can read his blog at schultztake.blogspot.com. If Trump does not get convicted, is this encouragement for a future president to call upon his or her supporters to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power, even if some lawmakers believe impeachment is inappropriate once a president is out of office, what does it mean if Trump's actions have no major repercussions? Now, I think you're absolutely right here, is that does this send a signal now you know, to posterity, you know, to future presidents to say that it's essentially okay um, to wage war on the popular vote, wage war on the Electoral College, wage war on, on the peaceful transition? Had, had the House and the Senate censured him, president doesn't get an opportunity to respond to the censure the same way he does here. But think about the combination of the president loses the election, he's censured, and he's sort of held in public disrepute for what happened on January 6th. Maybe sometimes how one is viewed in history is a more powerful message than allowing somebody to now be exonerated, where it says the message that this is okay. I mean, I think of somebody like Nixon, for example, who the House never got to the final vote, you know, on the impeachment because he resigned beforehand. Who knows, of course, what the message is going to be 100 years. But most of us right now walk away even 50 years later from this saying that what Nixon did was wrong. And everybody agrees that what he did was wrong. And he pays the price in history because of that. And future presidents, I think, have have learned from that not to do what he did. Near the end of January, the U.S. Supreme Court tossed out cases concerning whether Trump had violated the emoluments clause, which states that a sitting president cannot profit from the office. The court sent the cases back to the lower courts, instructing them to dismiss the cases as moot since Trump is no longer in office. The cases were originally filed in 2017. If the legal process takes almost the entirety of a president's term, what is the point of having such rules? I think you're right. I think the courts wanted to duck this question for many years. They really didn't want to handle it. This may be one of our unfortunate stories of American history, is that a lot of times we hope the courts are going to rise above politics and rise above the the furor of the day, but they don't always do so. And my example that I'm going to give is back in 1940s, the U.S. Supreme Court sanctioned and allowed for what? Allowed for the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans on mere suspicion that their ancestry um, made them disloyal Americans. Um, It took until three years ago for the Supreme Court to finally say, we think that was wrong. Uh, Sometimes the courts unfortunately don't have the backbone that they need to have. Uh, and, And that's what sort of was bothersome with the emoluments one. I don't know at the end of the day if he violated it or not. 
But let's what? Let's have a decision on the merits. Let's actually find out um, what the answer is. And a lot of times the court, even though we claim it's objective and neutral, court personnel are smart politicians and they sometimes try to avoid the fights that they pick. Do you have a feel as to how the Senate trial will play out? What do you think each side will argue and what kinds of evidence will they present? Sure. Well, the Democrats, based upon the papers that they have filed, are going to argue that he's directly responsible for what happened at the Capitol, not just the rhetoric of that day, but the rhetoric leading up to it, for he kept denying the, the, the validity of the election, kept claiming that it was fraudulent, it was rigged, corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. So they're going to paint a picture of, of first a president who basically created the conditions, who created almost like the mixture that led to all this. And then uh, what they're going to also argue is that even if a private citizen was allowed to say some of these things, he's the president. We expect to hold him to a higher standard. I think what the Republicans are going to come back and argue is, is again, that you can't have a trial after he's left office. Um, Maybe they might even say that he's already been punished in the sense that he's lost the election, et cetera, et cetera. And they might even say that he's ultimately not responsible because he wasn't down there smashing the windows. He wasn't down there breaking in. Uh, It's those people who broke in. Go prosecute them. Go get them instead. David Schultz is a Hamlin University professor of political science and a University of Minnesota visiting professor of law. Professor Schultz, thanks so much for joining us again on Dialogue Minnesota. My pleasure. Thank you. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. February is Black History Month. Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, a look at the civil rights movement in both a historical and contemporary context with University of Minnesota Professor of African American and African Studies, Keith Mays. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time.